How safe is America today? It's an interesting question to pose considering the rise in domestic and homegrown violence across the country with mass shootings on the rise and everyone seeming to settle arguments these days with violence instead of conversation. And according to a USA Today survey published in January of this year, the United States ranks 129th with a score of 2.44. Just above the U.S. is Azerbaijan and below it stands Brazil. In a survey of the safest places to live in the world. So the question now becomes, what are the steps we need to take to feel safer as a nation? One person who may have some insightful answers to this very question is Simon Osamoir. He is a British-American author, a former UK police detective, and an Amazon best-selling author with expertise as the former head of counterterrorism at Mall of America. Simon is a highly sought-after speaker, having been featured in the award-winning book How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic by the Violence Project. He is currently passionate about sharing his latest work, 10 Powerful Strategies for Conflict, De-Escalation, and he joined me this week to tell me how we can all live in a safer, secure, and happier environment. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. Well, Kevin, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. So thank you for having me on. As am I. Now, Simon, I know you're a former UK police detective and a best-selling author. And just, and I know you're based in Minnesota these days. And I wanted to ask you to start our conversation about your perspective on the mass shooting culture in America and your thoughts on why the gun violence epidemic is such an American uh, problem. I'm fascinated uh, to get your perspective there to start our uh, conversation. 
Yeah, well, that's an interesting place to start, Kevin. And I actually looked at some data only yesterday. I was educating an organization about active shooter yesterday. And in the US, there's been 190, to this day, 190 mass shootings where four or more people have been killed since 1966. So I like to start there to understand that we are seeing a mass shooting epidemic in the US, without a doubt, but there's only been 190 since 1966. And if we premise that with the fact that gun violence murders in the US alone, there's around 19,000 murders a year by gun crime, it helps us to get into perspective that we do need to be concerned about these mass shootings, but they're actually a small percentage compared to the, the gun deaths um, by um, by um, by gun crime in the US every year. So that sort of level sets a little bit where, where we are. And I think one of the things that we're starting to see change, and this is across the world, Kevin, not just in the US, my personal opinion, you asked my opinion, so I'm going to share on your podcast, is that we are seeing a mental illness epidemic across the world. And I think that has been a, a strong contributing factor to these mass shootings. And I'll tell you, I, I, I stated case a little bit wide. Uh, one of the mass murderers here, and I generally don't name these mass murderers, but I will on this podcast because it gives some context. In 2015, there was a 21-year-old called Dylan Stormroof who went to a Baptist church here in the US uh, in, um, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, and he took nine human lives. Now, he says that he's a white supremacist, and that was the reason why he went to a predominantly black church. But I think most people looking from the outside would say that this perpetrator had profound mental illness, and we see that in a lot of these cases. So I think... One of the contributing factors is that we're seeing an epidemic of untreated mental illness, and that is um, sort of starting people to manifest this idea that uh, the way that I'm going to solve my hurt and pain is to take other people's lives. So I think the manifestation, in my opinion, and research is starting with the mental illness. I think what we're also then seeing, and there's a great organization here in the US called The Violence Project, which is co-founded by a good friend of mine, is that because we have so much media, because we have so much news, one of The Violence Project's attributes from their research is that these mass shooters are studying other mass shooters. And there's a certain element of a script that they're following, and it's no surprise, but we're starting to see a lot more of the mass shooters wearing tactical gear and bullet resistance vests. And one of the reasons why is because they're studying other mass shooters and they're seeing what they're wearing. And in relation to, to the validation aspect from the Violent Project's research is that these people, they're, they're seeking validation of their ideas. They're finding people that understand how I feel, um, you know, the brokenness and the pain. And they're seeking validation that this is the right path. This is the natural path for me is to then go and take someone else's life. So there's a lot to unpack in there, Kevin, but I think we're seeing a mass uh, a mental health crisis here in the US and perhaps across the world. And also the social media and the research that these mass shooters are doing, they are studying other mass shooters and they're trying to emulate them. So each one, they're trying to get bigger than before. Um, and they're really seeking validation for their ideas that, you know, this person was like me, this person would understand me 
And the natural next cause is for me to go to a school, to a supermarket, to a mall, wherever it may be. And the, nat the natural step is to then take human life. So there's a lot in there, Kevin, for you to unpack. Indeed. And uh, uh, Simon, just before I ask you about your book and your work uh, as a speaker as well, I'm also uh, curious to follow up with a, a two-part question. You brought up the mental health epidemic in America, and there is certainly one of those, but I'm also curious to get your thoughts on that or gun death is now becoming the leading cause of death among children in America, and you know, you know, I'm not asking you to get political also with this answer, but I'm also curious to ask you about to weigh in on the assault weapons ban debate, if you choose, and where you uh, come down there, because I think uh, mental health and assault weapons are also interconnected. So does that uh, trouble you at all that uh, gun deaths are now the leading cause of death for children in America? Absolutely. And your podcast is called Let's Have This Conversation. So I'm happy to go there, Kevin. Yes. Yeah, so here, here's where I would start. So uh, when I immigrated from the UK to America, in the United Kingdom, most guns are outlawed. Um, you can own maybe a hunting rifle, you can own uh, a shotgun, but predominantly firearms are outlawed, which means the access to firearms is very complex. Is there illegal guns on the, on the streets of England? Absolutely there is, but there's a, a small percentage because the basis right now is that the law prohibits you from having a firearm. So in relation to the access, since I moved here to America, I've embraced the culture. I own numerous firearms. What I would say is that people being responsible having firearms, I would welcome restrictions on firearms. I would welcome having wait periods, having more verification of, of who I am to make sure that those firearms are going to responsible members of society. They're going to use them for hunting. They're going to use them for sports and they're going to use those for fun activities. So I think as a responsible gun owner, my personal opinion is I would welcome more tighter controls. However, however, I have to say that it is not the firearms that are the issue it is the person behind the firearm. So what I like to see happen and where I like to spend a lot of my time in safety and security is understanding, well, what is that pathway to violence that leads that 19-year-old to walk into their former high school and feel they have to take human life? What is the pathway to violence for someone to go into a shopping mall and feel that they need to discharge a, a weapon and take human life? There, if you'd gone back, Kevin, eight, ten years ago, people would most probably say, well, that person just snapped and then this was a result. Whereas now we widely agree that these people don't snap. There is a pathway to violence that they go through an escalation in behaviours. Uh, and I'm a great believer of... Yes, we can have more controls on responsible gun owners such as myself. However, we need to focus our time and attention 
on the crisis intervention, on the mental illness, on those people that are struggling in life and trying to get ahead of left of the bang as opposed to policy and reform right of the bang for change. So um, hopefully that answers um, your, your question, Kevin, but I do believe as a responsible gun owner, I wouldn't be opposed to more gun laws or gun controls against me. However, the firearm is not the problem. It's the person who's got the, the gun. So we do need to make sure as a society, we're doing what we can to help identify those people that could be on that pathway to violence because that that mindset with a firearm is where the danger, danger comes. Uh, and moving on to uh, the book that you've written, as you said, you're heavily involved with the uh, Violence Project. And I know... Uh, you helped to co-author a book entitled On a Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And you've also written uh, another book with uh, the 10 strategies for uh, conflict uh, de-escalation. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about uh, the book that you've written and the message behind them as well. Yeah, so I'll start with the, the How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Some of my work featured in the book. I wasn't a co-author. My work just featured in there. So I don't want to take claim for someone else's research, but, but I didn't do, Kevin. But um, my book, 10 Powerful Strategies for Conflict Escalation, um, coming out of the recent um, COVID-19 um, pandemic, and a little bit before then, I realized, and me living here in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, to give some context for your listeners, that the home of George Floyd, where there's been a rebirth for race and reconciliation, I really found, Kevin, that there's large pockets of society, be it in our personal life, um, be it in, in and around law enforcement, be it in the workplace, but a lot of people don't feel comfortable around conflict or people don't understand how to move through conflict. So it really inspired me to create the book, 10 Powerful Strategies for Conflict Escalation. And initially it was going to be called um, putting out fires and not starting them. And then a friend of mine actually say, um, read the sort of draft and said, Simon, this actually works better off as different strategies. So within the book, there's 10 strategies to help people work through conflict to try and sort of reach uh, a resolution. So that was really where what inspired me to write it is coming out of a time when there was a lot of race and reconciliation here in Minneapolis, a lot of conflicts in the workplace, a lot of hostility, and just giving people some tips and tools to try and sort of work through those most often complex problems. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just out of personal interest, I'm also curious to ask you about your um, opinion about reckoning with the police in America, since you are uh, based right in the heart of Minneapolis. And what higher things uh, the, per the perception of police has changed since the murder of George Floyd and how uh, the, the subject around uh, the police in general has changed uh, since the murder of George Floyd and the perception of police. Well, I'm wondering your uh, thoughts there. And I would say in relation to the perception of the police, um, I think here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I think most pretty widely across the US, I think most people in society 
understand that the police are there to do good they're there to help us and their primary role is public safety is is to um create a, a world free of crime and make sure that those that could sort of break the laws are taken through the criminal justice system i still believe that most people understand their, their role but they are the first responders when when in time of crisis that is who we call we call 911 and we seek their services um however coming out of george floyd i think there's a lot of apprehension around police departments particularly here in minnesota and they're under a lot more examination of their use of force in their community policing in their attitudes and personas as to how they police the community. And I think this, the attitude of point the gun at someone first and ask questions later has most but been challenged to the point where they've got to um, sort of reverse engineer how do they embrace and how do they communicate with members of the society. And I'll give an example where I live. I live in a cul-de-sac and we'll have our community officer but will drive around the cul-de-sac, but at no point will they get out of their vehicle and interact and say, I'd love to get to know you. I'm one of the local police officers here. You know, what's your name? How long have you lived here? Just, just try and find out some genuine information, you know, about, about who you are. And, and I think it's caused people to challenge how the police system is working here in the US. And I think somewhere along the way, Police departments have lost sight of the fact that most of the people they're going to come across are good members of society, and, and they've got to learn to understand how to communicate um, with with the community. And it's not just point the gun and ask questions later. They've got to spend time to, to build build rapport. So I think it's a real challenge in times on both sides for police as to what does that training program look like. Um, and the accountability that comes with, with um, from members of, of the society. But um, is there a lack of trust against law enforcement here in Minnesota? Absolutely. Is that lack of trust valid? Absolutely, because um, there's been numerous people that have demonstrated that we shouldn't give the police our trust. However, however, and I've done this twice now in this podcast, Kevin, there's still many, many good police officers out there that are trying to be the, the the model police officers that we'd expect to see. So us as the community, as much as we don't want to be profiled and we don't want them to be prejudiced against us, we can't then profile those police officers. We can't be prejudiced against them that they're all the same because they're not the same. There's many good officers out there. So, so I think both sides have got some learning to do here, Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. And Simon, I know that you're... And I'm spending some time as uh, in uh, security consulting, running your own uh, security firm there in Minnesota. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about that. I also know you used to be the director of counter uh, terrorism for uh, Mall of America. So it really gives you sort of a 360 degree view of how to uh, keep people safe. So I'm wondering if you uh, can tell me about those two roles and how they've impacted your life. Absolutely. So you know, being head of counterterrorism at Mall of America, it is one of the largest 
pieces of infrastructure, um, not only in the Midwest, but generally uh, across America. I mean, now it's up to, I think it's six or seven million square feet to give your listeners some perspective. There's a theme park inside it. There's now a couple of hotels. Uh, And there's so much danger working in an organization like that because the mall has around 42 million visitors every year that come to through those doors because it's free, open-door public access. Uh, And it has around 10,000 staff that work inside the mall. So as a security operator, you have to get it right every single day, whereas someone with harmful intention only has to get it right once. So there is a lot of um, depth and burden that comes from being in such a high-profile position. But here's the unique thing about it, though, Kevin, is that I joined British law enforcement when I was 19 years old. Uh, I served uh, just short of 14 years before I emigrated here to the US and then spent time at Mall of America Counterterrorism uh, and then now do my own consulting. All the roles that I've had have been very stressful roles, um, but the underlying theme about who I am as a person is that really I'm a, sort of a, a teacher, uh, a coach, um, and, and I love to make sure that people can have a safe and secure secure life. So I think the, under, the underlying theme behind my positions from a young age joining the police at 19 uh, is that I want to make sure that the world is a safer place as possible. And I think I've always found out roles that would do that, and particularly um, being in charge of counterterrorism at Mall America was a very high-profile role, and my team were the behaviour detection department that would go around looking for unusual behaviours outside of baseline, and then would hold conversations with individuals. So there was a strong risk of terrorism and serious and organised crime. So for me, a lot of for me, a lot of fun. But those, yeah, the underlying theme I believe is is sort of um, leadership, community, and wanting to make the world a, a safer place. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Simon, I know that you've uh, been uh, nationally recognized for your work uh, dealing with soft targets in America and abroad. So I'm wondering, when you look at the safety of the world today and how vigilant people have to be to be safe today in America, I'm wondering your thoughts on how we can educate people about soft targets and being safe in America today? And that's a really good question. And I think I would come back and say what we all have to do in today's world is be more situationally aware of the circumstances that we're in. Uh, We spoke a little bit before about active violence. In 2022 alone, there was shootings at schools. There were shootings at hospitals. There were shootings in shopping malls. Um, you know, so every different sector has had one of these large-scale mass shooting events where four or more people have been killed. Pretty much every sector has been hit with that. So as we go about our day-to-day world and day-to-day life, we need to be conscious of that. We don't need to be super alert where where I spend all my time. Um, we don't want to, we don't want to be sort of unaware. We need to be somewhere in the middle where we understand that the world is a dangerous place, and then things can happen. And then once we come from that place, Kevin, we can then say, well, what are some steps that we can do to stay safe? So if we are parking our vehicle in what we call a parking lot in Canada, maybe like the UK in a car park. 
is making sure that you're parking your car close to lighting, close to a door where you can get out and you can be seen. You might even want to drive around the parking lot and find out a place where there's some cameras and park close to those cameras. Uh, when we're going to a, a shopping mall, um, considering that as we're walking around, making sure that we're we're trying to observe the environment around us. How are people reacting? Do, do we feel safe? Is our instinct saying to us that we're, we're feeling safe? And, and rather than walking down the middle of that shopping mall, maybe walk alongside the building line. So if something does happen, you can naturally walk inside a building, they can close the door, and then you can be safe from any danger. So I think, Kevin, it's about putting these different layers in place of awareness. And then once you do those, you repeat them, rinse and repeat time and time again, and they become very natural. When I go to restaurants, most people don't want to sit near the kitchen because it's noisy and that's where all the food comes out. However, me as an individual, I know that more than likely that kitchen has an exit to it and that kitchen has lots of weapons in it if I need to defend myself. So a natural layer for me is to sit close to a kitchen. So if I need to escape, more than likely that kitchen will have a rear door and I can run away from the building. Or if I need to defend myself, that kitchen has weapons. So, And it's just, I've done that so many times, Kevin, it just becomes a natural template, but I don't let the hostess sit me. I look as to where I feel is the best place to sit in that restaurant to stay safe. And then I say, this is where I need to, this is where I want to sort of go, go and sit. So I think it's about sort of understanding that the world is a challenging place, Kevin, and then building in some natural um, sort of templates where you're doing the same behavior over and over again to, to help keep you, help keep you safe. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious to ask you about uh, conflict with, resolution on a broader scale and higher is things uh, we can all work together to create what I call sort of a national unity of understanding when it comes to public safety. So what is the, is the key to sort of establishing sort of a protocol for uh, national safety for all of us on a broader scale? And I like that you said that. And what I found, I wrote about this in my book, is that if we take workplace conflict for a second, Kevin, I mean, what we tend to find as humans is that, as I mentioned, conflict doesn't come, or, or working through conflict doesn't come naturally for all individuals. And what I found is the best way to deal with conflict is to not ignore it. And what I mean by that is if we see that someone is angry, if we see that someone is troubled, if we see that someone is not in a good place, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, Simon's not in a good place right now. I don't want to have that conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to ignore that. Or we see someone who's troubled. I believe that a path forward is to lean into those conversations and say, Simon, I can see that you're struggling right now. I can see that you're unhappy with this situation. What can I do to help you? Or Simon, how can I get you through the situation? They might say, Simon, well, there's, there's nothing you can do to, to help me right now. I've just got to work through this problem. But I think as we look about unity, um, getting the community together and, and all being as one, 
It's when we see people that could be struggling or in conflict is not shy away from those difficult conversations is to lean into it and say, I can see you're struggling with X right now. I can see you're struggling with Y. I want to help you get through this. Explain to me how I can help you get through this. And then just listen to these people. And I think once you're you'll find that there is an acknowledgement that they're in crisis. There is an acknowledgement that they're agitated. There is an acknowledgement that they're mad. And and like I said, they'll, they'll give you some things that you could do to help them. It could just be, I just need to be left alone. Um, but I think leaning into these conversations is where us as a community can help, particularly if the crisis is around mental illness. Ignoring that doesn't help the person. We've got to lean into those tough conversations. So I think that's what I would say, Kevin, is uh, making sure we're leaning into those difficult conversations, not ignoring it. If someone's in crisis, it's very, it's perfectly acceptable to lean into that and say, I can see you're struggling right now. I want to help you. Please explain to me what that looks like, and I will do whatever I can to help you get through this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Simon, as you mentioned before, you spent uh, 14 years as a part of uh, the British Police Force, and one of uh, your most famous cases has happened when you helped or were a part of the uh, British Security Services uh, investigation with one of uh, Britain's most uh, famous cases. So I'm wondering if you can tell, uh, tell me all about it. And, the impact it had on your personal life as well. Yeah, and, and it's great that no one has ever asked me that question before, Kevin. That is a, an exceptional question to ask a police officer. What was the impact on your personal life? And um, it was great because one of the things that the people do not understand, and it comes into your early question about law enforcement, is there's a great deal of sacrifice that goes with being a police officer. And as Kevin mentioned, for people that might be unfamiliar with that case, in 2006, there were some British-born Muslim extremists that were going to actually make the bomb on the plane and then detonate them as the planes were going towards America. And it was the first time the, the British police had really started to use um, terrorism laws post 9-11 when every country was creating these terrorism laws is really the first time that on a large-scale case Britain said we're not just going to um, use this intelligence because the British security services are very much like the CIA here in America where I reside with their intelligence they said we're actually going to allow this plot to evolve to get to the point where we have enough evidence that we can arrest and detain them so what that meant for me was, I think when I look back at what we call our pocket notebook, which is our diary of what we did that day, I think for six or seven days, Kevin, I think I worked 18 or 19 hours straight for six or seven days. So when you feel about the the great question you asked me, no one's ever asked that before. Um, the strain on my family was great because, because you're not there. Um, you know, there's relationship, there's friends. Um, you're not there. You're You're missing things. And then when they ask you questions, you have to say, well, I can't answer that question. It's like, well, you can't tell me what you did at work today. No, no I can't tell you that. Can we talk about something else? Um, so it, it, it can be very difficult sometimes as a police officer working uh, serious and organized crime and now these modern day terrorism cases because you can't tell those people nearest and dearest to you. 
And it's not because you believe that they're going to go and blab and tell people, but it's a matter of national security. It's a matter of, of great importance for the good of society. You know, you, you, you've got to make sure that, that the fewest people know, know the better. So it impacted my life greatly. It was a challenge for, for friendships. Um, but it was also an interesting um, uh, time, Kevin, because like I said it, it was new legislation. As a police officer, we're working with the British security services and doing surveillance alongside them. Um, and it was a very, very proud moment. I've got it actually framed in my office in the upstairs of my house to know that even though the public don't necessarily know the full story, even though the public um, sort of uh, maybe not acknowledge the sacrifice it takes, that was something that I did which helped an investigation to stop people cause immense harm. And it's something that I take a lot of pride in knowing that um, sometimes as a police officer, Kevin, it can be a thankless task, um, which is why I have it on my my wall in my office to remind myself that, you know, Simon, what you're doing in this world does matter. And I've carried that into my life post the police with my consulting with Kingswood Security, with my time at the Mall of America. Those small things, small things do matter. Yes, absolutely. And Simon, as you mentioned, the name of my podcast is Let's have this conversation. And one of the reasons I wanted to start it when I lost it three years ago, Simon, is because, you know, I look at the world and I said, said there's more that, that's tearing us apart than bringing us together. And I wanted to create an outlet and a platform that allowed people to really close the gap of division and really build bridges of unity. So I'm you're great into you're asking some really um impactful questions i like this it's really good and um i tell you of an incident so in 2017 an armed gunman walked into the first baptist church in sutherland springs in texas uh killed 26 people and tragically one of those was the pastor's daughter who was 14 years old terrible terrible events at the first baptist church in sutherland springs at home that day was a gentleman called Stephen Williford um, who heard the gunfire. They call him the Barefoot Defender. He took his firearm um, from his gun safe and went and engaged the assailant. And there was a pursuit and, and Stephen is a, is a national, national hero and, and treasured by all. Well, Stephen is a white man from Texas who I don't want to age him unnecessarily, but I think he's most probably... Um, 60 in that in that area. It could be a little bit more, but I'd say around 60. I interviewed him on my podcast, Kevin, to get a bit of a backstory about what it was like to engage the gunman and, and what did he learn about himself in that moment. You fast forward around three years later, I met him last summer at a, a conference where he was speaking at, and we sort of become friends offline. And I said to him, I said, I wonder if people look at us and say, why are we friends? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, Kevin, I'm a 45-year-old black guy 
from England living in America, you know, and Stevens, this 60 plus white guy from Texas, he's got the cowboy hat on and a big bushy beard. I said, people must look at us and say, why are they friends? And he said something which was very, very intentional. And it really struck with me to answer your question, um, Kevin, is that he said, Simon, he said, we're not so different. He said, there's actually more that joins us than that there is that separates us. And it was interesting because it made me reflect on, I had possibly been put in a barrier between me being a 45-year-old black guy from close to London living in America against this guy in his 60s with a big beard and a cowboy hat. And people are going to look at us and say, well, well why are they friends? And it really caused me to think that there's more that joins us as communities than what there is that separates us. So I think as a way to go forward outside of race, outside of ethnicity, outside of economic status, I think we can all start by saying there's more that connects me and Kevin right now in this conversation than what there is that separates us. So I think we can just lean into those difficult conversations. And a couple of years ago, I was back in London and a person that was homeless uh, approached me and asked for some money. And I generally didn't have any money to give him, but I said, I don't have money. Um, but I said, what I will do is I said, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And Kevin, me and him spoke for 25, 30 minutes. He gave me his history about how he'd got into drugs, how he'd become homeless. Uh, he's living on the streets in his daily struggles. Um, and he started crying. And I said to him, what are you what are you crying for? And he says, Simon, you're the first person today that's made me feel like I'm actually a person because most people are looking down on me. And again, you know, me, my world and his world were very different, but there was more that connected us in a conversation that actually separated us because I stopped, went down to his level and took a time to understand what was his journey because no one is born that way. You know, circumstances, life, family, whatever it is, everyone has a story. So there is more that connects us than separates us. We just need to lean into that and be open to listening to the conversations and then finding those, finding those connections. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Simon, I'm also fascinated to ask you your perspective on what happened uh, January 6th of 2021. And your thoughts on what FBI Director uh, Christopher Wren said when he said the greatest threat to Americans today is domestic terrorism. So I'm wondering your thoughts there. What, what do you think we sort of got off track to have events like like January 6th occur. Yeah, and and it's a difficult one, terrorism, um, Kevin, and and it's definitely changed. I mean, for the FBI director to say, you know, the greatest threat is domestic terrorism, I would even go, and we haven't got time to unpack it on this podcast, but I'd even go as far to say, as you know, what is what is terrorism? Because the definition has really changed and there's so many different components to terrorism now. So I'd mostly take that conversation there, but we don't have time to unpack this on that podcast. Um, but I would say that I think the greatest threat that we do face is that when we are in public, 
there is this epidemic again that's my opinion but it's based on um, crime data there is this epidemic of mental illness which is causing violent crime which is causing these large-scale attacks and so i think one of the biggest challenges that we have is protecting ourselves when we are in public and then also being brave when we see behaviors that are outside of baseline being brave and not um, not sort of talking ourselves out of this. Did I really see that? Did that person really say that? Uh, and leaning into those difficult conversations. So it's a hard one, Kevin, about domestic terrorism. I, I would agree with him, but I think there's there's many different sort of definitions now of what you might concede to be uh, a sort of terrorist because it has changed so much from the days of Al-Qaeda hijacking people planes and, and pulling down the, the, the twin towers um it can be one person now with the ideology where i'm going to get in my car and i'm going to run you know i'm going to go to a, an event where there's 300 people i'm going to drive my my um uh, drive my car through people so it's um you know that political belief that political um position they're trying to change one person can do that now and can be called a domestic terrorist yeah, absolutely. I saw my final uh, question for you this afternoon is a two-part question as uh, uh, we've mentioned throughout our conversation. Uh, you originated from the UK, but you've li lived a great deal of uh, your life in America now. And, and I'm curious to get you to comment on the differences between UK and American policing and it. And just finally, my friend, I'm wondering, when you look at your life and uh, your personal and professional legacy, I'm wondering how you want that to be defined. Yeah, two good questions. The, the first one, and... Um... I'm always happy to share my view and opinion on this. Uh, and it's interesting, Kevin, that in the UK, obviously most guns are outlawed. So as, a, as an officer, you don't see too many, but there are tragically officers being, being killed and murdered. But we really police by, by consent. And what I mean by that is that I think there's a bit more community-mindedness, minded, if that is such a word, to, to how we interact and to how we work with communities to solve problems. I think here in the US, there's been a sort of a, a distance put between the police officers and the communities that they serve. And like I said, I think both sides have been responsible for that. I think um, us as a community will become more um, more apprehensive um, towards the police. But again, most police officers are, are doing good. So I think we can have a bias sometimes as to how they're going to treat us based on what we read in the news, but not all police officers are like that. So I think both sides can look at that. Um, so I think community policing needs to come back in the US. I think there, there has to be that want and desire to understand the communities that you serve. Um and I guess the biggest thing that I've seen here in the the US is that my interactions with law enforcement, quite often um, they've tried to coerce me, they've tried to sort of trick me, or they've tried to sort of have these conversations to lead me to say things um, that I might have committed a crime. And as an example, Kevin, I was stopped once by a police officer and he said to me, uh, it looked like you're on your mobile phone. 
And I said, officer, looking like I was on my mobile phone, is that a crime? And then he said, drive away safely. And I said, thank you very much, officer. Uh, and I've had officers that say it looked like you were speeding. And I was like, officer, you, you must have a radar or not. You know, um, I wasn't speeding. What is it that you want to say here? And they sometimes use these like sort of tactics, if you like, to sort of stop vehicles. But what I found, his interesting thing, Kevin, has been, and you're, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, so your audio listeners will know I'm a, I'm a black English person living in America. I found that being English here out trumps being black when I've had interactions with the police. Uh, most often they've seen me as an English person as opposed to um, someone of African-American colour. So I think that may have changed how I've been dealt with, that when they've come to me and my former background in law enforcement, but as they've tried to coerce me and use some of these underhand tactics that we don't want our police in this country to do, and I've responded, I think they've just seen me as uh, an intelligent, articulate English person as opposed to a black African-American that they're, they're stopping. So it's been fascinating for me to see how law enforcement treat me as a man of colour with an English accent. Um, so that was the first part, Kevin. I'll pause there in case you've got anything else, and then I'll ask, answer your second question about legacy. Yeah, no, but I only had a question that popped into my head, Simon, was about uh, what would be your message to anyone who may be uh, wanting to see to... Uh, uh, Career in law enforcement, and what would you want people to know about the uh, the profession at large as well? Yeah, and, and that's, that's great you are saying. And here's what I would say, and I've said it a few times. You know, despite the stories I've just told you about underhand tactics for law enforcement, let's remember that 99.9 percent .9 of the people that put on that uniform that wear that badge are good people. And they really want to make a difference in this world. So we we have to remember in any occupation, there's that small percentage, you, you spoil it for the majority. But law enforcement are still dedicated individuals. They're sacrificing their personal life. They're sacrificing missing their kids grow up to help the good of the community. So I'd always want to say to people is you read and hear stuff in the news but I would always challenge you to um, form your own opinion. And when I joined the police at 19 in England, uh, my police department, my intake was around 128 officers, um, Kevin. And I think there was most, probably two or three black people and like 120 officers. So it still wasn't a time when black people were joining the police. And people would say to me, well, do you really want to be that pioneer. Do you want to go in and, you know, they're not going to treat you well. Well, you've got to go in for yourself sometimes and see. And what I found was that dedicated individuals that didn't really care the color of my skin, that didn't really care anything about me other than let's work together to try and make a good of a community. So if there is people of color listening to this podcast or just anyone in general that wants to join the police, I would say, don't be guided by what you've read in the press. Go in for yourself and see, because you're going to find those dedicated people that are there to keep the community safe. Yeah, and I'll just give you uh, the space time to tell me about how you want your legacy to be remembered. And uh, just finally, if people want to get connected with you, what's the best way they can do that? 
Yeah, so I would say in relation to my my legacy, I, I think when I look back upon all the things that I've done from my time in British law enforcement, from my time at Mall of America, and from my time creating my own path with Kingsborough Security Consulting, helping organisations on risk management, I think I'd like to feel that people will look back on me and say, Simon really cared. Um, not just about himself and his family, but Simon really cared for the communities and everything that he did was to try to make our world a better place. And I think that is what I would like to be remembered by, is that someone that cared enough to dedicate time, to make sacrifices, um, to do what we can to make this world a better place. Because it's very easy for all of us to say, well, we'll never change a broken system, but you have to try. So I think I would like my legacy to be the fact that um, I cared enough to try to make the world a safer place for other people long after I've left this earth. Yeah, absolutely. And Simon, follow and tell me if uh, people want to get connected with you, what's the best way they can do that? Absolutely. So my organization is Kingswood Security Consulting. We organize, we help organizations, schools, houses of worship, um, churches, nonprofits and businesses around safety and security, helping them create their emergency operations plans, um, help them train their staff and any volunteers to make sure that if there's an emergency, they've been empowered, they know what to do, they've been given some tips and tools to stay safe. And one of the best ways to look about my services is on our website which is kingswoodsc.com kingswoodsc.com or if anything that i said has resonated with you and you'd like to reach out personally you can just send me an email to team at kingswoodsc.com team at kingswoodsc.com and someone on my team will get that email to me and happy to answer any other questions that people might have so kevin it is i'm really enjoyed this conversation today and you you've pushed and pulled me in, in some new directions so Really, thank you for providing me the opportunity to, to be with your listeners. Well, you're most welcome, and I want to thank you uh, to, uh, for your service to making uh, both America and the UK a safer and more jubilant uh, place to live. My friend, your work in the space and law enforcement in Taiwan, my behalf, is most appreciated, and I want to thank you uh, for being here today. It's most appreciated. Thank you, Kevin. Take care.